Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday, the 12th of the 5th. I am on holiday. Michael, how have you been? Uh, I'm not on holiday. My life is one long holiday. Why are you on holiday? Well, there are legal requirements as to how many holidays you take a year. So, eventually, Michael, if you refuse to take holidays, they'll make you take holidays. Hmm. They could drug you. Soma, like in Brave New World, send you on a, a drug holiday. I'd like to see you on acid. That would be funny. Anyway, moving along. We've agreed that I will go on holiday and I'll just be really bad at it. <laughs> Hence why we're, we're still here. Brilliant at being on holiday. It just, you will find it hard to distinguish the, the difference between being on holiday and not being on holiday. Oh, like earlier I was dealing with a, a legal issue, but I was very relaxed throughout it. So I'm putting that down as a, as holiday. We've got to find our fun where it is. Inside, Gary. I'm dancing inside all the time. Michael, to start with, there was one story I wanted to touch on. Which was? And it is not available online. I can see no online record of it. Bear the fact I'm looking at it in the paper right now, you wouldn't think this thing existed at all. It's a story from The Times, uh, from Colin Coyle of The Times. And you might remember, Michael, the last while we had, there was a bit of a furore in Ireland about threats to academic freedom and the freezing effect of certain types of um, public speech against academia, that it could damage academia. And I saw this and I was just, it just struck me that that furore was uh, over the Chinese embassy. But the article is, is headlined, Concern Over Academics' Links to Tobacco. Now, what it's about is the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland has written to Simon Harris to raise concerns about a number of recent academic appointments with affiliation to the tobacco industry at Irish universities. The letter was written by Des Cox, who's chairman of the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland's policy group on tobacco, and he wants the university sector to implement stricter ethical guidelines with respect to appointing academics with links to to the tobacco industry. It also says they see a significant conflict of interest where a university is rolling out health promotion strategies such as a smoke-free campus and smoking cessation services for students, while at the same time appointing academics who have propagandized for the tobacco industry. That seems to me to be pretty much an ass-pull, but, you know, it's the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland. At least they're well-trained in getting the hand up there. It's, that's what we call procto procto proctological rhetoric. Once employed by our national universities, these academics receive a highly regarded platform from which they are in a position to promote the tobacco industry's agenda. Who are these people, Gary? Tells Harris, all individuals being considered for academic appointments or honorary titles should have to declare previous affiliations with the tobacco industry. Note the word previous there. I am not now, nor have I ever been a member of the Communist Party. Cox wants you, like Mark of Cain, if you've ever touched the tobacco or vaping industry. And improved transparency of conflict of interest in academia will prevent the tobacco industry from getting a foot in the door of our universities to promote their harmful products. Now, why I suspect this article is not available online, although I do not know, is it then says it is understood Daniel Mallon, an assistant professor in business ethics at Trinity, is one of the academics referred to in the letter, although no one is named. And it then quotes from Mallon. Now, the interesting thing is, if Mallon is one of the professors or the academics they're talking about, you would assume if Des Cox was writing in, Michael, this is about people who are working in the field of public health in medical science. Maybe preschool education. And these are people who are secretly going around the kindergartens of Ireland, handing out single cigarettes to the small children and getting them hooked. Because otherwise, I'm slightly at a loss to understand what the man is. I haven't heard. I mean, I know your point, Gary, but just on a general point, have you heard or come across any academic in Ireland doing anything which would pass for advocating for or propagandizing for or pushing tobacco? Nowhere near it. The, the, this Mallon, this professor that he's, he's talking about, is an assistant professor in business ethics. So the Times seems to be saying that Des Cox is writing to Simon Harris as, in his position as the Minister for Higher Education, basically saying none of these people should be hired. We should not allow any of these people 
into universities. Now that to me seems on the face of it, assuming what the Times has reported is accurate. And I haven't seen the original letter, so maybe there may be some, shall we say, uh, finessed details there, Michael. But on the face of it, that is a disgusting assault on academic freedom. It's pretty outrageous. But Gary, you know, in the past, people have wondered and speculated to themselves and written books like 1984 and Brave New World and others about you know what would the shape of the coming dystopia, utopia would it be? And where would it come from? Would it be from science? Would it be from the drive to power and the destruction of war? I wonder, there is a word, isn't there, Gary, for government by doctors? You know, you've got like an oligarchy and a democracy, aristocracy, a kleptocracy. There is a word, which is government by doctor. And our recent experience of the pandemic has suggested to me, Gary, that deep in the Irish medical community, there's a touch of the shirt which is black, or at the very, at the very least, the shirt that is blue. There's a, there's a totalitarian instinct in our healers and minders and carers, which you, I suppose most of the time we don't get to see. But in, when we do see it, it's, a, it's, it's quite impressive. And this, this is a test of, this is a good old-fashioned purity test. I, if we are to allow for this, and I, I, as you say, I think it's very curious that it's not just people who are currently involved in shilling for the tobacco industry, but people who have, at any stage, I mean, this presumably means people who've got any kind of grants. It's, normally, it's the practice that if you publish anything, if you have an interest, you declare that you have received money from this fund or that fund or that company or this grant scheme. So people are aware after that, they should be in a position to judge the research on its own merits. But what next people in the arms industry? If you get money from Mr. Khashoggi, does that mean that you shouldn't be employed? We, we all know the position regarding the trade in alcohol, Gary, which is going to soon be a bigger killer in this country than tobacco. Although Recent tobacco policy has actually seen an uptick in tobacco consumption here, so we don't know. Maybe tobacco's on the way back. Will will people who are being funded by Guinness and Jemison, the likes, they, will they be allowed into the universities? Or is it the case now that we can just accept, we can just stake policy positions or organisations we don't like, and if we don't like them, we should simply say, well, no one should be hired if they affiliated with them. I would I could point out that the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland is vehemently against harm reduction in relating to tobacco usage. I could state that that is a, an absolutely unacceptable position to make. Utterly. Utterly unacceptable. And that I don't think anyone associated with Des Cox should ever be hired at an Irish university. Would that make Irish universities better? Arguably. Should it be done? No. People who, for the sake of a political or ideological position regarding harm reduction, are willing to see, are, are willing to contemplate the uh, likelihood of more people dying and more people getting very seriously ill than would need be. Surely that's a terribly reprehensible position, Gary. And we don't want that kind of people in our universities, around our young people. I these aren't the kinds of people we want. And I think we should take steps to ensure that those, these are not the kind of people that get in there. And I think that, that you should write a stern letter now. Now you're on your holidays and you have time. You should write a stern letter to Minister Harris on that subject and get them out. Anybody else we shouldn't have while we're there, save you writing another letter. And the thing here is that if the Times is right that Daniel Mallon from Trinity is one of the people who are being referred to here, he says he accepted a grant from the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World. Now, that is funded by Philip Morris. I, I think totally funded by Philip Morris. Mm-hmm. And he said he, he got a grant from them to produce a research report on state-owned tobacco. He didn't even directly take a grant from Philip Morris. And he just said, well, look, the report has a clear statement on the funding, and it was important work. And then he says his, his interest in the field is relates to the ethical aspect of tobacco harm reduction. Now, that may be part of what Des Cox doesn't like. People disagreeing with Des Cox? Being employed and not living penniless and naked in a fucking gutter? <laughs> Shivering. Oh, the RCPI can't have that. Next, you'll have these people being treated as human. There was an interesting story just on the subject of harm reduction. I thought it was really uh, just cried out, God, there's some difference in behaviour. There's a, a, a programme being launched, which is that people who present at A&E in, the United, in, in England, now, they present at A&E with anything, you know, broken toe or a cut finger. I mean, it doesn't, not necessarily anything to do with their, uh, their pulmonary conditions. But people who present at A&E who are smokers are going to be offered 
vaping as an alternative to smoking in the A&Es because they think, you know, this is a way to get at people who haven't got them before, you know, you have them there, give them the old vapor. I think this is incredibly creative and proactive approaches to the problem. I, mean, I know we all quite correctly hate the word proactive, but this is actually being proactive. And do you know what the English are looking good at this old health stuff these days, aren't they? Being a bit creative, a bit different, being a bit quick and being a bit sensible about for harm reduction. That seems to be their genuine concern, harm reduction. But not here, Gary. We are, we are not in the realms of harm reduction here. One, as I said, there's no online trace of this story. I couldn't see anything on the uh, website of the Royal College of Physicians either. For all intents and purposes, it doesn't exist other than this article in the, uh, in the actual print edition of The Times, which is read by about 10 people. So I've sent, a, I sent an email to the RCPI looking for the full text of this letter uh, because I want to have a look at it and confirm it is as it was reported. And if it is, tear through Cox for a shortcut. I mean, how, how, how much the plot, Michael, do you have to fucking lose <laughs> before you're writing to the Minister for Higher Education saying that there are some people employed who once... At some point in their life, not now, but at some point in their life, worked for companies indirectly related to other companies I don't like. And these people should all never have been hired at the very best. Like, how fucking mental do you have to be before you sit down at your desk and you sort of go, <laughs> this is an appropriate use of my resources. I am in the right here. My resources, my time and my influence and my reputation and my position. This is not a man who is without influence and without power. I mean, this is not, this is not you or I writing this letter to Simon Harris. This said letter, if it was ever read by the minister, which is unlikely, would then have been gently deposited in the cir circular file beside his desk. This is a man that might even be taken seriously. This, this sounds like the sort of thing. Like, yeah, he, he's speaking with the full authority of the RCPI, apparently. And then he writes something that sounds like the sort of thing you'd find and it'd be a combination of green ink and cut out newspaper words. Oh, but oh, not to be fair, to me this more smacks of the preacher in his pulpit. This is the kind of thing that John Knox would have preached in his in his heyday. In, or maybe Savonarola, actually. More, more Savonarola in Florence, getting them all out. Getting them flagellating, Gary. Flagellate them. Get them bet. Get them whipped. All the sinners shall be whipped out to the edge of the city and beyond. Because, Gary, until the sinners, the likes of this man in Trinity, for example, took dirty tobacco money, until those sinners are thrown out, there's no chance that the Lord God will smile on us as a society. We need to be pure and we need to be purified. I don't think this is a madman. This is this is a preacher. This is a man of God, calling down the fulminations of the Lord onto the sinners. We must we must drive the sinners from our halls and into the underground caverns where they can live as troglodytes. We're not burning them, Gary. Nobody's saying burn them. You know, we're not doing that. We're we're not we're we're not medievalists. You know, we're compassionate modern people. All we want is that they be stripped of their reputation and their employment. They have consorted with the great enemy and now must be driven underground. That's all we're saying. So, you know, if you consort with the devil, it's a bit like our friends in the progressive movement like to say it's about free speech. You know, okay, free speech doesn't mean it's free of consequences. I mean, I, I have had, I've been involved in many political things on various sides. Some of those have been very emotive, very strongly impactful situations, Michael. Yes. And I've never thought it would be appropriate to write to the person in control of any area related to it and demand that all of those who disagreed with me at any point in their life be driven from the halls, possibly with whips. And yet we have a man here who seems to think, this is, is, is appropriate. And in a week where, thanks to the great joy of Nefit, we're discussing the overwhelming arrogance of certain elements of the Irish medical establishment, Des Cox has just put the cherry on that cake, while simultaneously demonstrating that he is a clown. Yeah, but come on now. 
nobody in their right mind would ever suggest that an Irish doctor could be arrogant. It was unfair of me to say that Des uh, Cox was a clown. He's not a clown. He's the entire fucking circus. I thought I thought you were going to go the other way and say he was a mime because some people like clowns. I'm sure Des Cox have a family who love him. And a dog. Probably a dog who's very fond of him. A bit of a fight brewing, Michael, about uh, housing. It seems to be going between uh, Ono Breen and pretty much all of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael at this point, actually. Ono Breen and Darrow O'Brien. Well, yes, but that's not limited to two combatants. Oh, no, it's not. I mean, let's face it. If it comes to the disaster, which is Irish, the Irish housing market, there's plenty of blame for everybody. I'd say there's one for everybody in the audience, in fact. So what happened is the C-Shop came out and said that Sinn Féin was blocking housing um, projects. He said that uh, Sinn Féin have questions to answer, they're serial objectors to any sort of large-scale development, and that there have been cases where Sinn Féin uh, councillors and TDs had stopped hundreds upon hundreds of houses to be built. Ono Breen came out and said, the C-Shop is lying. Big, big fight, fighting words, Gary Dim is fighting words. Now, I think it's important here to, to note the difference between lying and being wrong. Yes. People act like there is no difference. a massive difference. If someone to lie to you, they have to tell you something that is false, while knowing that it is true, and usually combined with an intent to deceive you. They have to tell you something which is false, knowing it to be false rather than true. Mm. And, that, yeah, with the, with the intent to deceive. The big intent is with the intent... So they're lying. The Taoiseach is not just wrong, he's lying. So then Ona Rin also said that they don't have, Sinn Féin don't have the votes to block developments. They have voted for every social housing planning application in Dublin, and that Sinn Féin has called for public housing investment for decades. Now, Gary, yeah, the thing is there now, some people, some people, not me, and certainly not you, but some people would say, oh no, Bryn is lying. And yes, it is also not a lie. So, for example, Sinn Féin don't have the votes to block developments. Now, this is true, Gary. Sinn Féin do not, alone and by themselves, have the votes to block developments, to do anything. In fact, they do, if you're talking about, say, Dublin Council, Dublin City Council, Dublin County Council, whatever, Fingal County Council, Dublin, Rathdown, they don't have a simple majority and therefore not in a position by themselves and alone just to, to do anything. However, that's a little bit disingenuous, isn't it, to say that? Because they do have a lot of votes. And if they get if they were to cast their votes in one way rather than another way against a group or a blocking group, they could actually change the outcome of the vote. And here, here's another one, Michael. He says Sinn Féin voted for every social planning option in Dublin. Odebrecht is in Dublin Midwest. Which is Dublin. Here's an article from News Talk. I'll just give the headline of it, Michael. From January of this year. O'Brien defends objecting to social housing development in his constituency. It's odd, isn't it? Because O'Brien has objected to social housing in his constituency, which is in Dublin. Which would seem to indicate that at least some people in Sinn Féin have voted or objected to social housing developments. Now, he did say that he only did that after engaging very extensively with the local community. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they've, got, they've put together, Michael, one of those alternative plans that we talked about in one of our previous episodes that just never seemed to get built and people tend to forget about. It was not their fault. That's not their fault, Gary. That's a combination of rentiers and vulture funds and profit-greedy developers, and Fianna Fáil, and Fine Gael, and the middle classes, and the Dublin football team, and Alex Ferguson, that they're all in it together, Gary, to stop these things happening. Because otherwise, the fundamental weakness of the capitalist system would be uh, demonstrated, and there would be revolution. But I, I thought his quotes on it were particularly interesting, because he, t he told News Talk, 
that when people tell us they want homes, because many of these people have family members on the, the housing on the housing waiting list, they also want us to ensure these houses are properly planned and, in as much as is possible, valuable green space in built-up urban areas is retained. There are more people in my constituency who want to see me and my party colleagues deliver as many social and affordable houses as possible. But communities have a right to be involved and be consulted. Oh yeah, and you know, we want to keep uh, we want to keep all the trees too so it's a tricky thing it's a tricky you have to balance up all the people who don't want you building those houses there because it might affect the value of their property and you've got the nice trees and then you got the people who want the houses so what are you gonna do get rid of the trees where will the birds live michael and the birdies wouldn't have would have nowhere to go for a nest no bird has ever driven down property prices apart from possibly a rare bird on farmer's land that ends up inexplicably shot or poisoned. Now, Alan Farrell TD has a, uh, a chart, which I don't know if it's right, right or wrong. It's hard to imagine Alan Farrell TD would go to the trouble of making a chart that wasn't right. And in this chart, he puts the number of party group votes against housing motions on Dublin City County Council. On Dublin City Council, rather. And on it, he says, Independence for Change voted on 21 occasions against housing motions. People for profit, 19%. 19 occasions, and Sinn Féin, 16 occasions. Social Democrats, 12. And then it's pathetic, Gary. Fall twice, Labour twice, Villegale, once. There are two names on the chart of people who created the chart. Yes. One of them is a member of Fianna Fáil, and one of them is a member of Fine Gael. Yes. And if I believe correctly, the one who is in Fine Gael is a former... President of Ogre? Anyway, you're saying that these are disreputable people. No, what I'm saying, I, I, this is it's a very interesting chart, and it's it's about the number of times a party has voted against housing motions and in Dublin City Council. But my understanding is that some of the votes they counted are questionable. Oh no, Brian, he's trying to mislead you, and he knows he's trying to mislead you because he knows what he says is is on some parts true, but overall false. However, he, he is right about one point. The Taoiseach, by focusing purely on Sinn Féin, is also arguably acting in bad faith. I'm not sure if I'd rise to calling it a lie, but if you look at the, if you look at the the actual situation here on the ground in relation to housing, I don't think there's any party that can claim a monopoly on objecting to housing in its area. The left-wing parties in Dublin have a very particular reputation of how they deal with housing at the council level. And it is by virulently objecting to everything and then putting forward plans that the council itself says cannot be done or are absolutely unfeasible, but fill all the ideological boxes as to the amount of you know, ownership of the housing, um, the amount that is there for social housing, all of that stuff. And yeah, it just never gets built because it can't be built because while it sounds perfect on paper, nothing happens and the end result is that the local... Uh, left-wing councillors can go back to people and say, I stopped that being built, and so can the TD. That's its purpose, that's what it does, everyone knows it, there's no great debate about it. Having said that, it is absolutely not just the left-wing TDs, it is a general thing done by TDs and councillors. I'm just wondering, when does... We have been... We've been talking about housing as if housing was an important political issue for a few years now, which is say three, four years. I wonder when, when will it be? Do you think it's, has it yet gone into a subject where people actually vote on it or in some way connected to it? I think young people do, yes, but young people also have the lowest voting rates. And that was my follow-up question. Yeah, young people care about it, but are they, are they, are they voting? And what, like, one of the things we were told in the, in, the, in the change of the evolution of politics in the United Kingdom is very much connected to housing prices and the relationship between housing prices in the South East, particularly London, and the proportion of your income that you have to spend. I heard a conversation uh, on the radio was leading up to a, a programme that was going to be about, I don't know if it was politics or commentary or documentary, about the fact that the social contract has been broken in Ireland, that the capacity for young people to buy their a house, to have a property, to get on the property ladder, has been so massively impacted that many people now have given up on the idea that they're ever going to own a house or own a property. And that the blame, I can't remember quite how it was framed, but 
it, certainly the implication was the blame was something to do with politics and something to do with business. But there was no sense at all that young people are in any sense responsible for this because, you know, we, we, <laughs> the kinds of policies that have got us where we are are also the same kinds of policies that tend to be enthusiastically endorsed at the ballot box by the young people that do bother to go to vote. I think we're now caught in a, we're caught in a kind of, a, 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 I don't know, is it a form of a, 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 a problem of the commons? Or is it a problem with the paradox of Balaam's ass? I don't know. But everybody wants, everybody wants something particular out of the housing market. They want either private or the, or the government to supply it. And everybody agrees that all of these things are good things. But the problem, Gary, is you can't have all of them. You can't have houses at a certain price point if you're going to build them to a, to a particular level of spec. You can't, if you, you're talking, say, about energy efficiency or solar panels and uh, renew, use of renewables, but a very high quality spec in, say, kitchens, design, architecture, quality of materials. There are trade-offs. We seem to have lost the recognition that there are trade-offs being made here or that trade-offs could be made. Yeah, I think you're, you're right on that. It's not so much that there's been a debate and we've decided certain things are worth the trade-offs. We've just assumed there is no downside at all to anything we do. I I know we, we've talked about in, in the past, about if you want to determine what is actually important to people, don't look at what they say, look at what their actions are. Yes. Because lots of people, if you poll them and you ask things, they'll tell you they care deeply about everything. Interesting point here is that most polls don't ask for what's called intensity. It's not just do how much or what do you feel on this, it's how strongly do you feel it. And we don't tend to do that. So a lot of polls, there's a difference in a poll that shows 80% of people agree with something, but it's the most lukewarm agreement. And a poll that says 30% of people agree with something and they will shoot you if you disagree. Yeah, there's a difference. You can get huge amounts of people to agree or disagree about something, but then you can say, wait, how, how likely is this to affect the way that you vote? And then the, the numbers drop down to single figures. Oh, no, actually, no, this, this, is, this is not that important to me. I would very much like X, but, you know, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. I don't care. On, on housing, we've had all of these grand debates about housing and endless amounts on primetime television. Oh, no, Bryn wrote a book about it. He did. As we, we are never let forget. But when you actually look at how politicians and how the public relates to housing when they are not immediately trying to acquire it. It's not something that makes you think this is something people give a shit about. It's important to talk about, but when you look at TDs and when you look at councillors, a significant amount of effort is being spent by people across all parties to ensure that nothing is built, or at least as little is built in as far away a location as possible. I mean, there's the famous roundabout we constantly see here in Ireland, which is we can't build more houses because there's not the infrastructure to support them. And we can't upgrade the infrastructure because there's not enough local demand for its usage. We don't have the density to to justify the extra investment. And there are councils where that is just on a cycle. Anytime someone tries to either build something or improve the infrastructure to later build something. I wonder, I just wonder at times if housing has become the new health issue in that for many, many, many years, people would talk constantly about the health service, the health service. It was terribly worried about the health service. Are you worried about the health service? I'm very worried about the health service. Do you think the health service needs more money? The health service needs lots more money. Is the health service in crisis? The health, yeah, absolutely, health service is in crisis. When you used the health service, how happy were you with it? Oh, I was delighted. I had a very positive experience, but other people apparently are having an awful time. When you ask people about the health service, there were two things that came, came out clearly. First was, somewhere like 90% of people, when you actually ask them about their, their own experience of the health service, their, their health service, their experience was positive. Now, those numbers may have declined over recent years, I don't know. The second thing was, Everybody was concerned about the health service, but when you looked at exit polling after elections, the number of people who actually voted because of a policy or an issue regarding the management of, or, the, or the investment in the health service was actually very, very small. 
And I wonder, Gary, if we're saying that housing has become the new health issue, that we're going to talk endlessly about it, but actually we won't name names. You can if you like. <laughs> there are prominent members of, uh, say, the Labour Party, amongst others, Amongst others, I'm sure there are in every other party as well, who can't, who have gained reputations for being relentlessly consistent in their campaigning against any kind of building in their constituency and have been very successful in that. Now, it seems to me until that kind of behaviour ceases to be an electoral positive, and gaining a reputation as being someone who stops housing actually starts to lose your votes, that we can assume that if we take that as an indicator, that housing is simply that something that we're going to talk about. But when it's a really as an, as an electoral issue, mm, it's not that important yet. People aren't actually voting about it yet. When you if getting a getting a name for being the guy that stopped that house being built and that loses your votes, then we can know. Okay, now now housing is a serious issue. I think you're right that there are a lot of parallels with health in that it is a thing we talk about and there's endless approaches to it. But most people don't vote on it. But there are people, certain people, who do vote on it, and those tend to be people who are employed in the area or have family working in the area. They're also the people who are going to be the most likely to be negatively impacted by any change in, let's say, working circumstances that might be done as part of reform of the health service. Yeah. Reforming the health service has the potential to piss off an astronomical amount of people, both directly and when you include their families. And there are votes to be lost in that. But because no one votes on it, there aren't really many votes to be won. So you don't do it. Also, the entire system is a top-to-bottom mess, so... What are you going to do? Say we've got to close some regional hospitals? Yeah, that'll get you some votes. Oh, lots of votes in that. But you know what, actually? Well, no, I'm... I, yeah, to hell with it. I think that if you if you commit to talking to people and explaining and telling them the truth, assuming it is the truth, about the relationship between, say, the quality of the service that you're going to give them and the way you're going to change the service... And you keep doing it. You don't just stop after two weeks and say, oh, well, we tried. You just relentlessly talk and talk. I think I think in the end, people get... I think that there was a huge resistance, for example, to closing down uh, cancer treatment, particularly breast cancer treatment, when Professor John Crown wanted to initiate a reform of the system because we were doing very, very badly indeed. Women were dying in Ireland because of the way that we were structuring the treatment that they were receiving. And he, he wanted to create closes on bringing the centre of excellence. And it obviously meant you weren't getting local treatment. And people were very opposed to that. I think that if you go back, if you went back now to those places where the opposition had been strongest and asked them, now do you do you regret that? They, I think mostly people say, no, this has been a good thing. It has worked. But that's not something, that kind of communication is something you can do over a space of a few weeks or even a few months. You have to commit to doing that consistently and going back and saying, this is what's happening. This is why it's working. This is the idea. We're not taking something away from you. We're giving you something. We're doing this because we really believe this is going to work for you. Now, that's in health. Housing is maybe... <laughs> housing is a slightly different calculation, is it not, Gary? Particularly... You know, in the calculation simply, if they build those houses, I lose 25,000 quid off the value of my house. To a certain extent, I think politicians overplay the importance that people place on that. Yeah, I do too. I think you're right. But they've become convinced of it. And you, the thing to remember when looking at anything politicians do is more than anything else, people hate change. There is very little cost in just continuing doing what has been always done even if that produces terrible outcomes, because that's what people are used to, and you don't get blamed. Whereas if you let something happen, or you cause something to happen, anything less than total perfection is your fault, even if it is way better than what was there before. That's just how people are. I, I wonder as well if, on this issue, this isn't one of those accepted wisdoms that may not necessarily be that true at all that 
politicians have decided in their heads all over the country, not just in Dublin, particularly in Dublin, that if you are seen to have allowed this development to go through, that they will slaughter you when it comes to the elections. I'm not actually tr sure if that's true at all. First of all, I think people have remarkably short memories when it comes to anything uh, politically. Secondly, if you have enough time, say if the building is going up and, you, and it can be finished and done and tidied up and clean before the next election, people get used to stuff very quickly. And if its completion has not in fact resulted in a wave of crime and gourierism as was predicted, then people say, oh, sure. I, I, I just wonder if this, this hasn't become kind of a, it's an easy thing for a pop, it's a very easy way for a politician to get a victory. In a world where it's very hard to point to something with a specific precise thing, say, I did that, this was my victory. In these cases, it's a kind of a clear cut thing. It's an easy, it's an easy win to get and it's a very specific and concrete thing that they can say, I did that. I stopped 200 houses being built to the back of your street. I am a good and faithful politician. I deserve your vote. But I don't know actually if people are that terribly long-term are going to be that punitive. Unless, of course, I mean, it, it depends to an extent on the kind of development you're talking about. I just wanted to, to bring this up, partially because calling the sitting Taoiseach of the country a liar is should be a big deal. I don't think we actually think it is, but... Arguably, it is, and it should be. But also because if if the Taoiseach is a liar, then O'Brien will fall, you know, by the same sword. Primarily to mention that there is no grand party here that can stand up and say we've never done that. No, God, no. That's just not how this works in Irish politics. And so, for all the sniping about it, these people are in pretty much the same position a lot of the time. So to, to close up just, just quickly, there's just a particularly interesting study I wanted to, to bring to people's attention, uh, attention. It's called Viral Visualizations, How Coronavirus Skeptics Use Orthodox Data Practices to Promote Unorthodox Science Online. It's by a number of researchers, uh, primarily at MIT, but also one is at uh, Wesley College. I, I will include a link in the, the, the description box below. And what it is, is these researchers who are primarily MIT looked, uh, went into anti-mask groups and looked at how they interact. And it is a really interesting study. It's, it's actually, it's a particular type of study, which generally does not go well and is not uh, terribly well regarded. I think a lot of time the, the ethnographic study, but this is actually really well done. Until the end. So this is a, it's an ethnography. Ethnography, there's nothing wrong with ethnography. I think the pro thing that people have a problem with is also ethnography. Fair point. But this is a fascinating, I think, really fascinating. And for around seven-eighths of it is a really, really interesting, balanced uh, paper and surprising and well put together. And then it goes, shall we say, it goes off in a direction. If this was a movie... This will be one of those movies where people say, I never saw the twist at the end coming. Oh, this is the M. Night Shyamalan of ethnographic research. <laughs> yeah. So what it, what it did was they, they analyzed Facebook groups and Twitter groups, um, mostly on the mask issue. And they looked at how these people interact. And I will just open this by saying that, as I, as I was saying during the week, I think TRSI was the first Irish program to tell people that they should wear masks. I think we were the first Irish program of any, or any media type to consistently tell people to wear a mask. Well, no, to say to people that we thought that mask wearing was a good idea. We don't tell people to do anything, because that's not who we are. We don't tell you how to live your life. We merely suggest better ways. We just say, just don't live it like I do. Sometimes your life's greatest purpose is to serve as a warning to others. I am a walking warning, Gary. <laughs> so just, I'm, just to put that out there, because it's not the case that I agree with the people they're studying. No. Because that's, uh, obviously, you're more likely to talk favourably about a, a study if it says nice things about you. So just to put that out there. But it looks at this, and it looks at um, how these people relate to science, and how these people relate to information, and it lauds them. I mean, at great length, and it makes some very good points about how they handle science and how they handle knowledge. It talks about the way they operate as a, com as a community. 
that how collaborative they are, how there's a, they place a really high value on the capacity for people to express complicated ideas simply, but also how you it's very you get very big kudos for being patient with people who ask questions and how you you understand how you help them understand it and how you you reference other well-regarded sources of information or evidence to add to your argument that and this i thought was really interesting from the perspective that it shall we say what you might have expected as a critique they say that to be a, an influencer in the community you had to have demonstrated a real capacity to understand data and statistics and numbers so you but the description of it operating as a community that was really interesting yeah there's a section of it 4.2 called anti-mask discourse analysis is exceptionally interesting and it goes through the different parts of it i mean here's a here's one one quote from it anti-maskers value unmediated access to information and privileged personal research and direct reading over expert uh, interpretations they talk about how they critically assess data sources. They talk about how they discuss how uh, terms are defined about issues in methodology and detail. They talk about how the community values uh, explaining to others and helping others to understand and improve upon the community's understanding of research. And they talk about how the anti-mass community has a greater scientific awareness of the literature than the majority of those who are pro-mask, which I think is, is absolutely likely to be true. They also seem to imply that these they had a, shall we say, a, a, a greater level of humility regarding the capacity for what they were saying to be probative. They were aware of the limitations of the evidence in a way which was superior to the to the, the pro-mass community. So here's, here's a quote from it. This study shows that there is a fundamental epistemological conflict between maskers and anti-maskers who use the same data but come to such different conclusions. As science and technology studies scholars have shown, data is not a neutral substrate that can be used for good or for ill. Indeed, anti-maskers often reveal themselves to be more sophisticated in their understanding of how scientific knowledge is socially constructed than their ideological adversaries who espouse naive realism about the objective truth of public health data. Quantitative, quantitative data is culturally and historically situated. The manner in which it is collected, analysed and interpreted reflects a deeper narrative that is bolstered by the collective effervescence found within social media communities. Put differently, there is no such thing as dispassionate or objective data analysis. Now, there is an arguable point there, but I think the point it makes about, and it, it goes into it at later points as well, that the anti-masking crowds understood science correctly, which is to un say that they understand it as a process. That there is no real such thing as settled science, because science is a way of understanding things through iterative steps, usually. And there can be no such thing as, as saying that science is settled, because if the science is settled, it's not science. Because science always accepts that you can be wrong and that there can be something that is closer to the truth. And reaching a conclusion in science merely means you've got to a, you've got to a new launching point from which you go to the next point. It's never a finish. To, or to, it, there is no end of the line. And then, so it, it has this, and it's about 18 pages long, and it goes through all of this, and it's actually quite solid. And then it gets to the end, and then it just starts talking about white supremacy. And you get to that point, and you're like, what the fuck happened here? Just goes mental. Yeah, suddenly. Suddenly we're just like, oh, well, it's problematic because it's, it's avoiding talking about narratives of white supremacy and the structural problems of white supremacy. Um, because, because the way that these people approach scientific knowledge is focused on individual responsibility and that that is an ethics smokescreen to avoid talking about larger structural problems like white supremacy. I, just, I got to that point. I just started laughing at it. No, actually, you, you should have said spoiler alert. But, like, why would you write a paper this good that is, is, is this fair to people? And it makes some excellent points, as, as I said, as someone who doesn't agree with this position, and then just fall to pieces in the last stretch. And the thing you have to, the thing you, I cannot ex express enough is the extent to which white supremacy is pulled out of their ass. I mean, 
it's not that they suddenly say, but look at this, look at these, confer- these, these conversations, look at this, this paper and that paper and the other paper and look at all the contexts. And, and there's nothing. And then, and then it starts talking about the coup. The coup, Michael. Did you see that section? <laughs> the coup, which uh, that where 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 Biden was overthrown and Donald Trump became president again. Yes, that coup. Yeah, that coup. yeah I remember that one. It just it just starts talking about that and and insurrectionists and and how these are linked together. And I will say this: like it makes a lot of like this is in the last page of it, basically. It just goes from, like, fine to insane for about half a page, and then it ends. So you, you get to the end, you're like, what? What the fuck is this? Having said that, it's actually well worth reading, just because of, of their analysis of the communities and the points that they make about scientific knowledge, which is entirely correct. On Just on the, the point I said earlier, where I said that I wouldn't be surprised at their point about anti-maskers knowing more about the scientific literature than the majority of people who are pro-mask. I would say that's probably true at this point. I would say if you had looked at it before the WHO and before governments had got on board, the reverse would have been true. And pro-mask people would have known much more than those who were against it. And that's just because majority views tend to be ill-considered. People believe things because they're told to believe things. So when that switched, you would have seen people go with it. Yeah. You see the same thing if you, like, the average, say, vegetarian or vegan has a better understanding of diet than the average person, because the average person knows nothing about diet. It's very much why the average fat person understands dieting much better than thin people, and the mechanics and the biology and the chemistry of dieting. Uh, they're still fat, but they know, they know why what doesn't work doesn't work, because they know the science of it. I don't know. There's a, there's a, the last page of the stuff, last page and a half, is so freaky. And so utterly unconnected. You know, sometimes you're reading, a, it could be a recipe or it could be an article in a journal, and you turn the page and the whole thing doesn't seem to be connected, and you realise actually what's happened is that the two pages have got stuck together by a dab of jam or something, and you, you separate, and that's why the, the your, your, your confusion is resolved, because you can, how the hell did I get from there to there? It, this paper feels like, there, there's a page missing where one article finishes and another article begins. One is an article by MIT scientists, and the next is an article by somebody from I don't know, the gender studies department who's doing an also ethnography of an experience of uh, violence in language or something. Is this Michael? I I don't want to I don't want to point fingers here. Yes, five authors on this piece. Four from MIT. One is from Wellesley College. Now, yes, Wellesley Wednesday. College is a private women's liberal arts college. I think Wellesley was Wellesley the college that actually came out and said its purpose for was now social justice. I believe it could be. It was originally started as a as a female uh, as a seminary. It kind of seems like, shall we say, there may be an MIT section <laughs> and there may be a Wellesley College section. You know when you do group work, Michael, and there's just someone who gets the conclusion. That would make work. There's a. a it, it's funny you say that because there's a. It, what this reminded me of was that there's a line I think from Samuel Johnson. He's talking about the poetry of John Donne, and I think we are more generally the the poet, poetry, the metaphysicals, and he says that what it is, it represents heterogeneous ideas that are yoked by violence together. And this, to me, seemed to be a paper which was seven-eighths one thing and one-eighth another thing. And they are, by violence, yoked together. Because they have nothing nothing to do with each other. It, if nothing else, it's worth reading. But it is actually worth reading. It's a really interesting thing. From the point of view of just understanding the nature of the, uh, the discourse about amongst these, these, these communities. Uh, and it was a community. But the, then, for as I say, the twist... The, the M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end is just, what the heck? They just pulled it out of their ass. It's, it's, I, I suspect it may be like a Des Cox lecture. So it starts reasonably <laughs> with public health on tobacco, and then suddenly he's calling for people to be rounded up and shot. And you're like, where did that come from, Des? Just just a sudden turn. Up against the wall, up against the wall. But no, it's, it's, it's well we're reading. Also, for the part of it where it talks about 
when people are talking about fake news and about educating people. Yes. The problem that the people you're saying should be educated may know more about this than you do. There are... I am, in principle, of all, opposed to all forms of violence. Um, you know, the non the the, print, the non the print, non-violence principle, I think, is is a good one. I do think that somebody saying to you, "Educate yourself," is pretty close to being a justification for the use of violence, particularly if it's said in a certain tone of voice, and it is always said in a certain tone of voice. For God's sake, educate yourself. It's a fact. Google it. Oh, Jesus. I mean, there was there, there was that little bit of a Chekhov's gun, Michael, earlier in the uh, the piece. Yes. Where it starts talking about how, well, when you're talking about fake news, there are problems with putting it down to individual media literacy, and we may need to look for more systemic solutions. Oh, systemic. Ten points for getting the S word in. That's always a good one. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think, I think that, that was like... That was the hint. That was, you know, the author's note that you should expect the twist. But you'd only see it after the twist. It's a very well-constructed twist, is what I'm saying. If we had firing parts, I just something has occurred to me here, Gary. You, you mentioned to me recently that there is a state in the United States which is going back to performing execution by firing squad. Yes. I'm wondering. Maybe you could find this out, send a letter, get on the phone for me. You know, you're... Go to the investigative stuff. Would Des Cox want to ban you're the the cigarette and the blindfold before you get shot? Would Des Cox want to ban the final cigarette? I'm going to bet yes he would. Michael, that is part it looks innocent, but that's actually part of the insidious normalization of smoking. Romanticization indeed of smoking. Absolutely. Because most we all know that when kids watch a movie, the person they all want to be is the guy getting shot by the firing squad. Ideally, long before the firing squad, though. If your child wants to be the person immediately before they're shot by the firing squad, therapy may be required. Or if they want to be a member of the firing squad, a job in the public sector. <laughs> yeah. Everybody should just want to be Tarzan. I don't, I don't even get that reference. Do you know who Tarzan is? No, I, I know who... Tarzan is, but... Why wouldn't you want to be Tarzan? He, he, he can swim. He can go through the jungle swinging on vines. He commands the apes. He wrestles lions. He has a fantastic body. He's around six foot whatever. Great teeth. I mean, I, I, there's nothing complicated about it. I don't know how anybody would want to be Tarzan. And that seems to me a very minimum requirement. And there are other people like... He, you could say he wants to be Spider-Man. Yeah, that's a bit weird. He wants to be Batman. Bit weird. But I think for a child to want to be Tarzan or Superman, absolutely normal. So we will leave it at that. We will be back on Friday. It, as I said, it is well worth reading the study. If you have any interest in this or just scientific education more generally, or you, know, you just like a good study, because who doesn't, Michael? I don't know who doesn't. Prestigious journals generally, actually. I mean, I don't know if you've seen some of the shit that Nature has published over the past couple of years, but... That's for another day. Until Friday. Bye-bye. All the best.